Hey, good morning. If you are one of our uh, pirate ship or battleship kids, if you are in kindergarten through fifth grade, you can head out the back door. Where are you guys back? You guys back? There they are. They're back there. So if you are kindergarten through fifth grade, we'll see you guys after the service. Parents, you can pick them up in their designated areas. Uh, Charlie has already wished you a Merry Christmas, and uh, it's starting to feel that way. Uh, Everybody, like, thoroughly anticipating Christmas by this point. Like, it's, we're into that season. Um, I, I love Christmas, I really do, um, and, and, and enjoy, the, enjoy the entire season, but I do, and, I, and listen, I'm just going to let you in on my life, I'm not going to project this onto you, but I do have some Christmas rules, really, in all honesty, just kind of to maximize seasonal enjoyment. I'm going to share these with you in hopes that you might take them and apply them to your family as well, uh, but you don't have to. Uh, my first Christmas rule is that um, I don't celebrate Christmas until after Thanksgiving. Like, right? Like, I don't, yeah, okay. Like, th- some of you are clapping because you get this. Like, you feel this. Some of you guys jump the gun. And it's like, Halloween is over. It's Christmas time. And I sort of get that. But listen, Thanksgiving is a great holiday. And I'm tired of it being like the middle child of holidays. You know, it just doesn't get celebrated like, let's, let's enjoy Thanksgiving. Let that, don't let that bird have died in vain. You know what I'm saying? Like, enjoy Thanksgiving. And once Thanksgiving is done, then we move on to Christmas. Uh, second thing is I, I don't open Christmas presents before Christmas Day. Like, it, it's, just, it's just a personal thing that I have. Some of you guys are like, oh, we open presents all through December. And that's awesome. But uh, really, like, I don't do it until Christmas Day. For me, it's kind of like... Uh, it, you know, it, it's kind of this weird thing of kind of putting the cart before the horse, maybe even. It's like going on your honeymoon before you're married. You know, like it's like the whole wedding thing should be family, friends, tradition. And then the honeymoon's for opening presents. You know what I mean? That's, that's kind of the idea there. So that, wow. All right. So uh, third rule. Third rule, and this one's pretty self-explanatory. Christmas vacation always trumps a Christmas story. Uh, and we need to at least watch Clark Griswold once during the holiday season. Um, that's just a personal rule for me. You don't have to take that on yourself. Uh, you guys might have your own favorite Christmas movies, but they're not as good as mine. Uh, we all have kind of this buildup for Christmas. Uh, we feel that. Like, you guys feel it now. It's anticipation. There's expectation. Uh, there's songs. There's the, the, the kind of getting cooler, at least 60 here in Charleston. Uh, we enjoy all of the kind of buildup for Christmas. Um, and then something weird kind of happens as Christmas kind of moves along. Um, usually when Christmas is done, like even maybe after Christmas morning or, or maybe it's the day after, you, you kind of go through this period of time where you feel a little bit let down, you know? Like it wasn't quite exact. like it was good, but it wasn't quite exactly what we were hoping and what we were anticipating. Um, this has actually been diagnosed, I, I did some research on this this week, and it's actually been diagnosed as a real psychological problem called post-holiday blues, It's what it's called. And before we kind of get real callous and go, well, they can diagnose anything, I really think that a lot of us have felt this, um, and for many of us, and maybe many of you in this room, like, that, that's a real thing. Like, you come down from kind of this season of anticipation and expectation, and, and you kind of get left in just a little bit of unfulfillment, even if the holiday was good. And so what causes this in us? Like what causes us after the holidays are done and after we get back to New Year's and once the year kind of starts rolling again, what causes this kind of feeling of, man, that just 
wasn't quite what I thought it was going to be. And maybe next year it'll be better. And maybe if we started earlier next year, it would be, it would be better. And really the problem, I think, as we kind of talk about this this morning, is just a, it's a problem of misplaced hope. It's what are we actually hoping in? What are we hoping for? Hope, by its very definition, exists because things aren't the way that they should be. Like if we talk about the idea of hope, we're hoping because we realize that things aren't always as they should be. And I think the holidays do a great job of kind of spotlighting this in our hearts. That things aren't as they should be. And so we hope that this Christmas, everything will be just right, and everyone will be just so, and it never quite pans out the way that we think that it's going to pan out. And so it draws a larger question for us. And the question then is, is there anything that we can actually put our hope in that won't leave us feeling unfulfilled? Is there anything? We really start to dissect what we hope in and who we hope in. Is there anything available to us that we can put our hope in that at the end of it won't leave us feeling unfulfilled? I, I believe that there is. I know that there is. And so this morning, the truth that I want to unpack in our time together is simply this, that we can hope in the promises of God. We can hope in the promises of God. God. And I could stop there, and that would probably be a sermon in and of itself, but, but I want to give you a little grounding for that. We can hope in the promises of God because why, is the pro- why are the promises of God any different for me to hope in than anything else? Here's why. We can hope in the promises of God because he who has promised is faithful. He who has promised is faithful. We hope in the promises of God because God is faithful to fulfill his promises. We named this series, His Glory, Now We See. And, and it's only when we have seen and experienced the glory. We, we talk a lot about glory in church, but glory is kind of a church word. We don't really use that a lot outside of this. But what's, what's the definition of glory? Glory just means weight, means worth, means value. So we talk about the glory of God. What we talk about is the worthiness, the value, the weight of God. And it's only when we have seen and experienced the worth and value and weight of God that we'll ever have any hope that will be finally and totally fulfilled. So if you have your Bibles this morning, turn to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, pretty familiar story. Luke chapter 1, we're going to start in verse 26. If you do not own a Bible, we, we would love to give you a Bible. That will be our gift to you. If you just stop by the connection table on your way out and just say, hey, I don't own a Bible, we have one that we would love to give to you. Now, if you just forgot your Bible and left it in the car, like, just bring it with you next time. But if you really don't have one, we'd love to give that to you. If you didn't bring your Bible this morning, the, the scriptures and things will be on the screen behind me. Or if you have your smartphone, tablet, uh, and you have downloaded the Version app, uh, you can simply click on that app and then click live events and search for the church at Cane Bay. It should be right there. All of my notes will be right there. However you choose to engage with the scriptures this morning, our hope is that you would engage with the word of God. So let's read Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, 
You will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was said to be barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Let me give you a little background here of what's happening at the beginning of Luke. You see, all throughout the Old Testament, Charlie, I think, spoke about this uh, earlier this morning as we were kind of huddling together. All of the Old Testament points towards the one who would come. Jesus, the, the entire Bible, if you want to know what the Bible's about, the Bible's about Jesus. The Old Testament points to him, the, New Test, the Gospels tell us about him, the New Testament points back to him. And all throughout the Old Testament, there had been the prophecy of the one who would come, the Messiah, the Son of the Most High God, the one who would make things right. It was prophesied all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, the, what we call the first gospel, where after Adam and Eve sin in the garden, uh, God promises the serpent that one would come of the seed of a woman who would crush his head and would make all things right that were broken at the fall. And so all the prophets and all the priests, they're looking for this Messiah. The Old Testament speaks of the one who is to come, the one who would make things Right. Now, God speaks to the prophet Malachi in the book of Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, and then for over 400 years, God is silent. He does not speak to his people. There is no prophet that comes to the people. There is no priest that comes to the people with a message specifically from God. And for 400 plus years, there's silence until an angel comes to Zechariah, and then an angel comes to Mary. And this angel has come to Mary and he is speaking to Mary the promise, the truth that the one who has been prophesied, the one who is to come, the one who will make all things right is within her womb. And so what I want to unpack this morning is this thing, these two ideas. One, I want to talk about the promise of hope. What can we hope in this Christmas? What, are there hope, what can we hope in that won't leave us unfulfilled? I want to talk about the promise of hope, and I want to talk about the product of hope from the angel's visit to Mary. First, let's unpack this idea of the promise of hope. God has promised hopefulness for us, the promise of hope. First and foremost, we have hope. The only reason we have hope is because of God. God is the great hope initiator. He initiates hopefulness in us. All of this story begins with God. Notice the first thing that we read in uh, Luke chapter 1, verse 26. It says, and then Gabriel comes to Mary. He was sent by who? By God. God is the initiator of Christmas. He is the initiator of mission. He is the initiator of hopefulness in us. So if we have any hope in us that one day things will be right, it's come to us from God. 
And we spoke just a little bit ago that hope, by definition, concedes the point that things are not as they should be. Think about the things that you hope for. I hope that they get home. You have family coming in. I hope they get home okay. Uh, That's conceded the point that there's an element of danger, right? That there could be something in this world that happens where they wouldn't, where your family might not get home okay. I hope they get home okay. Or I hope that I get this for Christmas. What that does is it kind of shows us that there's this dissatisfaction inside of us. Hope did not exist before the fall because before the fall, all things were as they should be. But now if we have hope, it concedes the point that things are not right. And the hope that God gives us is a hope that says, yes, things are not as they should be, but one day they will be. But one day they will be made right. And that's a hope that comes from the Father. And this hopefulness is tied to our very being. It's tied to the very um, soul of who we are. C.S. Lewis has written um, beautifully and brilliantly about this. And uh, in his probably most famous work, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis talks about this idea of not being able to find satisfaction in the things this world provides. And he writes this in Mere Christianity. He says, If I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. That is hopefulness that God gives us, that there are things in us that will not be fulfilled, but the hope that God promises to us is that one day those things will be fulfilled. And the central case for our hope is God's coming to us in Jesus. We talk about Advent. This is the season of Advent. The word Advent simply means coming. It means that coming, the arrival of something. And so we celebrate the first Advent as the case for our hopefulness. God has come to us in the person of Jesus that we might be made clean and that one day things might be made right. But as we celebrate the first Advent, we are at a period in time now where we also look forward to the second. That Christ not only has come, but that he will one day come again. The purpose of the first Advent was to secure the victory of the second. That Jesus comes, and he lives the life that I couldn't live, and he dies the death that I should have died, and he's risen by the power of the Holy Spirit, and he's ascended to the Father, and one day he will return to make things right, and he can do that because of the first Advent. That's what we celebrate, but in our celebration, let us not forget that he's coming again. That's the hopefulness that God provides for us. Not only do we have hope because of God, we have hope because of grace. We have hope because of grace. It's not just the God that gives us hope, but it's God's grace that gives us hope. Notice the angel says to Mary, greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. The, the word there, O favored one, or that phrase, it, it literally means greatly graced, one who has seen God's favor. Now, this draws a distinction for us that I think is important for us to see about Mary. Notice that Mary is a recipient of God's grace. She is a recipient of God's grace. Mary is not a dispenser of God's grace. Nowhere in the scriptures do we see that Mary is set up as one who will now dispense God's grace. Instead, she is seen as one who is just a recipient of God's grace. Um, I'll give you this example. So I, uh, I graduated uh, college, and I was given a degree from an institute of 
higher educational learning. I know that's surprising to some of you, but it's true. When I walked across the stage uh, and they handed me my diploma, what that does is it bestows upon me my diploma. I am now a recipient of a diploma, of a degree from my university. Now, what that does not give me the power to do is to kind of go Oprah Winfrey and go, you get a degree, and you get a degree, and you get a degree. Because I am a recipient of a degree, okay, all that I can do with that now is begin to make the best of that, is walk in that, is try to pursue a career outside of my college degree using what this institution has bestowed upon me. It does not give me the right to be the one who now dispenses degrees. That's what we get with Mary. Mary is a recipient of God's grace. She cannot now dispense God's grace back to us. She can be an incredible example of God's grace. An incredible example of God's grace, but she is not a deity. She is not like the Father. She is not like the Son. Is she used as a significant part of God's plan and God's story? Absolutely. But here's the good news. So too can you be. You, like Mary, have received God's grace through Jesus, and God can use you as a significant part of his story. He can Amen. You can be a recipient of God's grace. And Mary, the the, the thing that blows my mind about this whole story is that Mary is now carrying within her the one who will be the basis for the grace that God can show her. God shows Mary grace through the one that she carries. We only can have hope because of grace. We cannot earn grace. Hopefulness, we cannot earn God's grace. We talk about this all the time. That grace, if it's earned, it's not grace. God shows us his favor in when we deserve the opposite, when you and I deserve hopelessness, when you and I deserve to pay the penalty and the consequence of our sinfulness. Instead, God, through Jesus, gives us grace. The coming of Jesus shows us God's grace in that God has made a way for us to find mercy instead of judgment. That's the promise of hope. We can have hope because of God. We can have hope because of God's grace. So if that's the promise of hope, what's the the product of hope? The product of hope is this. Product of hope. First, we can have hope with assurance. We can have hope with assurance. The hope that God gives us through his grace is not the kind of fingers crossed, maybe everything will turn out okay Hope. That's not the kind of hope that we're talking about here. We're talking about hope with assurance. We are assured there is foundations to our hopefulness that God will deliver on his promises. Now, the angel, speaking on God's authority, makes ten promises in this passage to Mary. Did you catch that? He makes ten different promises to Mary in just his short conversation with Mary. The promises are signified by the word will. God will. This will occur. Ten times he does this. He promises that Mary will conceive, that the child within her will be great, that the child will be called the Son of the Most High, that God will give the child the throne of his father David, that he will reign over the house of Jacob. There will be no end to his kingdom. The Holy Spirit will do this. The Holy Spirit will overshadow you. 
you, the child within you will be called holy and that nothing will be impossible with God. Inside of his short conversation with Mary, God makes 10 promises that he then fulfills. Now, the number 10 is significant in the scriptures for this. Oftentimes, uh, numbers play a, a pretty important part in the scriptures. And when you see uh, numbers, oftentimes they're not random. Uh, and so the angel didn't kind of just keep promising things, just kind of keep adding on things here. I think the number 10 is pretty significant here. The number 10 in the scriptures usually signifies completion. It signifies that things are complete. You've got the 10 plagues of Egypt. You've got the 10 commandments. Jesus speaks about the 10 lepers and the 10 virgins and the 10 minas. We see the number 10 all over. And here again, we have 10 promises that are made. And I believe what the angel is saying to Mary is that our hope will be brought to completion through Jesus. Through the one that she is carrying, our hope will be brought to completion. We can have hope with assurance that God is able to do what he has promised. Now, hope with assurance, hope with foundations, hope with this knowing that God is going to do, that looks a lot like conviction. It looks a lot like conviction. I am convinced that God will do this. In 1 Thessalonians 4, 5, Paul says, because our gospel has come to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Now, hope with conviction looks like faith. Hebrews chapter 11. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So we have conviction, we have faith. Ephesians chapter 2, faith reminds us that faith is the means by which God's grace comes to us. For by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not of your own doing. It's a gift of God. Faith is the means by which we access God's grace, his favor shown to us through Jesus. It's not by our good works. It's not by our good deeds. But it's by faith. And grace is the means of our salvation. Grace is the means of our salvation. Read this passage to you from Titus. Titus chapter 3. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Christ Jesus our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope eternal life. We talk about the promise of hope. We talk about the product of hope. The final product of our hope is the grace of God which leads to the salvation of our souls. That's the final product of our hope. If we're going to hope in anything this Christmas, if we're not just going to, let's expand that. If we're not going to, if we're going to hope in anything at all, it should be in the grace by which God provides to us salvation. Now, this hope with assurance becomes hope with action. Becomes hope with action. Notice that after the angel makes these promises to Mary, Mary says, behold, I am a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. So Mary's faith, the grace that God shows Mary, Mary's believing that God will come through on his promises leads to submissive action. 
She goes, whatever you say, I'll do it. I'll obey. I'll walk in this grace that you have showed me. And that's the essence of faith. That faith, that faith does not simply sit still. That faith then leads to obedience. Um, Martin Luther, the great reformer, once wrote this. He said, we are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves never stays alone. That if we, through, by grace, through faith, have been saved by Jesus, that's going to lead to our lives being poured out for the sake of his name. Your faith was always meant to inspire you to action. Faith is, is, is a muscle. It's a muscle. And just like any other muscle that you have, it, as you exercise it, it grows. And so as we walk in faith, as we exercise our faith, we begin to grow in our faith. Mary recognizes that she is a recipient of God's grace, and she begins to walk in obedience to his promises. And so do we, you see how this works. We talk about hopefulness. We talk about the promise of God to us through his grace that we access by faith and that leads us to action. So let me, let me close this way by just asking a couple of questions. If you were to be honest with yourself, where do you find, where do you find that you're putting your hope this Christmas? Like, where, where do you find yourself putting your hope? It's really easy for us to go, oh, my hope's in Jesus. But, but if you're really doing significant, like, introspection, what's your hope in? What are you hoping that's going to be fulfilled this Christmas? What are you hoping? If we say that, yes, we're hoping in the grace that God gives us and his promises, how are you exercising that faith? Because that's important. It's important for us to be walking not only in grace, but in obedience. So how do we begin to exercise our faith? How do we begin to exercise this hope that God has given us? We exercise this hope by engaging with those who have no hope. We engage with those who are hopeless. We seek out opportunities this Christmas to share the hope that God has given us in Christ. So I'll close, I'll close with, with this story. Uh, before I was here, I, I spent several years in student ministry. And my first job in student ministry is I was a, I was a middle school uh, pastor. And I worked primarily with 6th, 7th, and eighth graders, and, and one of the ministries that we had was a was a community ministry. Uh, and every Friday night, we would open up uh, the gym at my church, and we would do something called locker room. And we would basically just say for three hours, we would open up the gym, and uh, kids from all over the community, sixth, seventh, eighth graders, could come. And man, it was five dollars, and we'd give them a piece of pizza, and we'd play some games, and they'd have a great opportunity to just kind of come and hang out. And parents could go out on Friday night and know that their kids were taken care of. And it was a booming community ministry. We routinely had 250, 300 middle schoolers that would show up, and we'd just give them dodgeballs and just let them go up into the gym. And you walk up into the gym, and you know that scene in Saving Private Ryan where they storm the beach? It's kind of what it was like. Just dodgeballs flying everywhere. 
But every week we would do this. We'd have this opportunity. We, we, we'd get them all together for about 15 minutes. We'd sit them on the bleachers. And uh, I'd have the opportunity then to, to just kind of share the gospel with them. And, and really, I mean, it was, it was just, let's just try for 15 minutes to do everything we can to try to get some focus here on what's going to be ultimately important. And some weeks it went well, and some weeks it was a disaster. It's just how it worked out. But I remember one week in particular, I gave a, uh, I, I gave a, a gospel presentation. I don't even remember where it came from out of the scripture. I just know that at the end of this presentation, I just said, listen, man, if, if you're here and you know that Jesus wants to forgive you of your sins, and you know, man, that, that you've never trusted him as your Savior, as your Lord, you've never placed your faith in him, man, I, I want you to come talk to me afterwards. And sometimes we'd have uh, 12 or 15 kids, and sometimes we'd have one or two, and sometimes we'd have the same 12 or 15 that came last week, you know, they're just making sure, they're just re-upping, you know, they're just making sure things are good. Um, but this week in particular, I remember I just had one kid respond, and uh, he came to me, and he was real kind of quiet, real kind of shy, and he just kind of came up to me and just said, hey, pastor, can, can, we, can we talk? And I remember we went out and, and we talked. And, um, man, and he was it, was, it was, it was, I could tell, like, there was real conviction there. He wanted to know Jesus. And so I got the opportunity, man, to just walk through the gospel with this boy. He was an eighth grade boy. He was 14 years old. And walked through the gospel with him, man, and just told him about Jesus and told him how much Jesus loved him and how much Jesus wanted to have this relationship with him, man. And if he would just place his faith and his trust in Jesus, that, that tonight could be the night, man, that, that God would change his heart. And he did. And we prayed. And, and this 14-year-old boy, I listened as he prayed and asked God to forgive him of his sins. And he trusted Jesus as his Savior and Lord. And it was great. I mean, things were, things were good. I tried to follow up with him. said, you know, let's, let's talk about this next week. Let's try to get you plugged in. Let's try to do some different things. Um, one month later, almost to the day, a month later after that conversation, I got a call um, that, that a middle school, scu- middle school student had passed away at the middle school. Um, he had been running in physical education PE class and just got short of breath. And before the coach could get to him, he went into cardiac arrest and passed away. And so I went to the school and asked, you know, I mean, I, I didn't know. I just went to the school and just thought this best thing for me to do is just be a part of this and, and go, and, and there's going to be lots of things. And so I got to the school, didn't know who the kid was, and finally found out from one of the teachers that the same boy had passed away, had been the boy that a month before had trusted Jesus as a savior. And so this, this was not coincidental to me. And so as we began to kind of do some, some research, and we thought, oh, how's the best way we can minister to the family, and, and, and what do we know? And uh, somebody had a contact with the family, we contacted the family, and, and they had no church background, they had no pastor, they had nobody really that they could turn to in this situation. And myself and one of the other pastors went to the house, and, and I'll never forget walking into the house and just, just the grief that you walk into. I, I, I don't know, man, there's, there's not much more that points to that things are not the way they should be than the death of a child. Things aren't the way they should be. This isn't the way that it should go. I remember walking in and, and, and meeting his, his mother, who was almost unconsolable at the time, as you could understand. I sat across from the table from her, and I took her hand, and I said, my name is, my name is David, and I'm one of the pastors at the church that I was at. And I just want to tell you in this moment, that a month prior to this, I prayed with your son, and he trusted Jesus as the Savior. And I believe that today he is with his Savior. And I, don't, I believe that God knew what was going to happen. Nobody knew what was going to happen. They found out later that it was, a, it was a birth defect in his heart, and that nobody knew. 
you know, had gone on unchecked. They'd checked. They'd done these things. They just hadn't found it. And then finally at 14 years old, it just flared up and he was done. And I took her hand and I said, I believe that Jesus knew and that Jesus saved him. And that even though we can't see this, this is part of God's good plan. And I cannot tell you in that moment the, the look of relief and joy, even in the midst of the most trying, difficult circumstances that that mom gave me. And she just wept. She just wept. And I thought about this story as I thought about this. How do we exercise our hope? How do we exercise our faithfulness? Here's how we do it. It's by walking in to brokenness and engaging even the most dire of circumstances and allowing the hope that God has given us by his grace to give hope to those who otherwise are hopeless. But it's not just that. Because I came away from that moment, and I came away from that, that just unbelievable period of brokenness. And I walked out of the house, and in my heart, I just said, come, Lord Jesus. And so when we engage with brokenness, not only do we have the opportunity to share our hope with others, But man, despair and brokenness just fans the flame of hope in us that things are not as they should be, but by his grace, one day they will be. One day they will be. We can hope in the promises of God because he who promised is faithful. Because he who promised Faithful. Do you pray with me? Jesus, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your faithfulness. God, when we are faithless, you are faithful. And your faithfulness to us is not based on our works or on our deserving, but it is based on your love and your mercy, your steadfastness, your loving kindness. Father, thank you for hope. God, in a season of hopefulness, I pray that we would not forget where our hope comes from that it has its foundations in the one who is faithful. God, that we would celebrate this Christmas, the coming of Jesus, his birth, his life, his death, his resurrection, and God, what that purchased for us. And that one day, Father, you will come again, you will set all things right. But until that day, Father, I pray that we would be faithful to engage brokenness, lostness, that we would not seclude ourselves behind the walls of our homes and the walls of our neighborhoods, but God, we would seek out opportunities where we can be a light in dark places and we can allow the dark not to overcome us, Father, but only to fuel more and more hopefulness in us that you are good and do good always. 
trust you. We love you because you first loved us. God, I pray that when all we have to hold on to is your promise, that that would be enough. That you are enough and you satisfy and you give good things to your children. That is our hope and our joy. In Jesus' name we pray.